You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 22nd of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, a week after a bomb attack in Istanbul, Turkey responds with airstrikes targeting parts of Syria and Iraq. We'll examine what the Turkish Defence Ministry has called the Hour of Reckoning. Also ahead, Moldova struggles with blackouts, a refugee crisis and threats from the conflict in neighbouring Ukraine. We'll ask if Europe's poorest country will get the help it needs. We'll take a look at plans to lower the voting age in New Zealand. I personally support a decrease in the voting age, but it is not a matter simply for me or even the government. Any change in electoral law of this nature requires 75% of parliamentarian support. We'll be in Qatar as the World Cup kicks off but still fails to distract from the bigger controversies. And we'll look at the papers and the tech news too. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. So busy hour ahead, but first a look at what else is happening in today's news. Rescue workers in Indonesia are racing to reach people still trapped following yesterday's earthquake. The European Union has warned that violence could erupt over the car plates dispute between Kosovo and Serbia. And Colombian government and rebel group ELN have begun fresh peace talks in Venezuela. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, a week after six people were killed in a bomb attack in central Istanbul, Turkish forces have launched a series of airstrikes on suspected militant targets in Syria and Iraq. Well, I'm joined now by Monocle 24 regular Ruth Michelson. She's a journalist based in Istanbul. A very good morning to you, Ruth. Good morning, Emma. So what is the latest on these uh, airstrikes? We have the Defence Minister yesterday saying that only terrorists and structures belonging to terrorists were targeted. That's right. I mean, the Turkish government um, coming out with some extremely strong language about the what they said was a large number of strikes targeting what uh, they designated terrorists across uh, northwest Syria and into the northeastern uh, region of Iraq. Um, in response, there were statements from uh, the spokesman for the Syrian Democratic Forces. That's a kind of coalition of different groups based in northern Syria. Um, he said that two villages that were heavily populated with displaced people um, were had come under Turkish bombardment and that this had resulted in 11 civilian deaths um, and the destruction of a hospital, a power plant and grain silos. This morning, we're starting to see statements from both uh, the State Department in the US and from Russia um, saying that they are hoping for uh, what Russia called restraint in northern Syria, um, because we've seen some statements from uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan threatening a ground offensive once again in northern Syria. So there's a lot to get through there, but whose narrative is, is, is coming across as the most um, accurate at the moment? An extremely good question. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we are seeing competing narratives about what's going on, um, certainly in terms of the civilian death toll. Um, Turkey has regularly con- uh, te- uh, undertaken airstrikes in northern Iraq and some parts of northern Syria. There has been uh, the, the accuracy of 
civilian counts and things like that is quite hard to ascertain when this happens. Um, and we also know that Turkey and, and Erdogan in particular have been making statements um, throughout uh, the past year really about wanting to launch a ground invasion um, into northern Syria. And that's why we're now starting to see this pushback, particularly from Russia, um, which has some troops present on the ground in northern Syria and has been trying to discourage Erdogan from launching this ground invasion for some time. This has been a situation that has been rumbling for several years, hasn't it? And you, you mentioned the, the, the number of airstrikes that um, the, the Turkish military carry out in northern Iraq. But this was prompted by this bomb last week in the middle of Istanbul. That's right. I mean, this awful bombing that was that hit a major shopping street in the centre of Istanbul um, on a Sunday afternoon, so timed to cause maximum destruction. Uh, what we saw afterwards, Erdogan flew to, he expressed condolences and then flew to the G20. And the majority of the statements that we saw um, right after the attack happened came from the, the interior minister, um, who made extremely strong statements uh, blaming um, Kurdish militants, the PKK and the PYD um, for the attack both of whom came out and said that they were not responsible and that they had no intention of attacking civilians. Um, but the statements from the Turkish government on this area kept coming. Um, and there was a, a narrative that this, the woman that was responsible for the attack, um, despite coming from a, a part of uh, northern Syria that is occupied by Turkey, they said that she had entered Turkey illegally through areas um, occupied by Kurdish militants and launched this attack. And Soylu then um, took, undertook some effort to say that there was that they would not accept condolences from the United States, which is a statement we then saw sort of walked back by Erdogan later on, where he essentially announced that Turkey had accepted condolences from the United States which backs some of the militants in um, in northern Syria. Indeed, and you just just explain a little bit more about this this rowing back on on the acceptance of condolences because the United States is a key player in this, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. So the the United States has provided support to um the PYD and some of the other Kurdish militants in northern Syria in the fight um against uh the Islamic state. Um and that's why why we saw a statement from the State Department last night um, essentially saying that we condolences for the loss of civilian life and we urge de-escalation in Syria to protect civilian life and support the common goal of defeating ISIS. Um, so from a US perspective, this is all a distraction from uh, the bigger sense of threat. And Erdogan, after Soylu's statement saying initially we would not accept condolences from the United States, was then pictured sitting with Joe Biden in Indonesia at the G20 the next morning. Tell us a little bit more about where you think this may go. It sounds as if people, you know, Erdogan sounds as if he's straining at the leash to take further action. Well, that's been the case um, Certainly, from Erdogan's perspective, from for the past few months, we saw that um, in repeated meetings with Russian and also Iranian officials earlier this year, um, that he has made statements saying, you know, this is this is something that Turkey needs for its security. We need to create what he has described as a buffer zone in northern Syria, um, and that at every turn, the Iranians and Russia in particular have have turned around essentially and said, this is not an option. Please scale this back. Moscow is not interested in having to um, reposition its forces or mediate this conflict at the moment, given, um, you know, post its invasion of Ukraine. 
Um, and Erdogan has repeated these statements over a number of months that this is something that he would consider. It certainly seemed recently as though that intention had been scaled back. And now yesterday, uh, he repeated it again, saying this is not just limited to an air campaign. And so that is the threat that there would be the potential for ground troops in northern Syria, which is why we're now seeing pushback once again from Moscow. And his motivation for this, often the question is asked, is this to please a domestic audience? Well, I mean, it's hard to argue that there's an international audience for for this action. That certainly would not seem to be the case. Um, the Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party are positioning themselves as the party of security, the party that is protecting Turkey and understand the only ones that understand this level of threat because we are slowly coming into an election season here in, in Turkey. There's an election expected next June, if not before. Um, and we've seen over the past few months that parties have been lining up to attack Erdogan and his party from the right. Um, and that the AKP and Erdogan have responded by uh, talking about deporting more Syrian nationals from Turkey um, and talking about these things much more within a kind of security framing and protection. And this falls into that narrative. Ruth Michelson, thank you, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Globalist. And you're back with The Globalist. And even before Russia invaded neighbouring Ukraine, Moldova had its fair share of challenges. It's often been called the poorest nation in Europe, for example. Well, now blackouts, refugees and threats from the war across the border have led to diplomats from 45 nations gathering in Paris yesterday to try to drum up some help. Well, Alina Radu is a journalist and manager of The Guard newspaper, the largest investigative media organisation in Moldova. I'm delighted to say Alina joins us now. Very good morning to you. Morning. Nice to meet you. Thank you for for joining us on The Globalist. Just explain to us, before we talk about yesterday's talks, what is the situation, what has the situation been like in Moldova before the war? Uh, It's very different. It's absolutely different in all the 30 years of history of Moldova. Uh, We are first time in our history when we do not have any clarity with the energy supplies. It is first time when we will not receive gas from Russia and the whole electricity supply was in a way controlled by Russia. So it is first ever year when Moldova will have energy from, let's say, European market or will not have at all. Explain to us, though, the, the, the fluid nature of the contact that you have with Russia, the fact that you have um, this, this ebb and flow of, of, of an enormous amount of, uh, of goods and people coming between the two countries. Uh, that is our tragedy that uh, many years ago um, Russia decided to cut a part of Romania and take us under Soviet Union control together with Ukraine and the other 15 former Soviet Union little republics. Uh, We separated in 1991, but 
we were never independent. Russia managed to control Moldovan politicians. Russia managed to control um, Moldovan election system. Russia managed to control then everything like economy, energy, uh, and selling of goods, Moldovan money, Moldovan budget, and everything. So it is first time ever, let's say two years ago, Moldovan finally, Moldovan people finally managed to elect uh, a pro-European leader and a pro-European team in the parliament. And then you see how hard it is for Moldova without having any border with Russia. Uh, still being controlled in many ways. Uh, we think um, Russia still controls Moldovan opposition that makes a lot of noise. They organize people to come in the street and to say, we want gas from Russia, get out from, from the parliament. Uh, we want only gas from Russia and power from Russia. So this is our tragedy. Uh, because Russia also controls some TV stations and many media and social media. And they managed to poison people's minds, saying that Europe will damage Moldova and Russia will save. Um, so tell us, how has the war in neighbouring Ukraine affected your lives, apart from the, the dreadful lack of power? Um, how else have things changed for you? Uh, everything changed because we, we got um, thousands and thousands of uh, refugees. Actually, about 80,000 um, of refugees are still in Moldova. And you imagine uh, we are the poorest country and we offered everything we could to accommodate uh, refugees. But then, uh, because of the war, prices increased a lot. Because of the war, we have energy crisis. Because of the war, we have inflation. Because of the war, may, many economical uh, relations, let's say, between Moldova and Ukraine uh, stopped or were destroyed because uh, uh, Ukrainians have their deep problems as well. And also because of the war, we understood that being so poor, we do not have a proper army. And uh, Russia already managed to uh, make us scared by uh, flying some bombs above Moldova. And some of them uh, uh, felt in the north region of Moldova. And we understood that we are so small, poor. We do not have capacity to defend ourselves without uh, foreign help. But Moldova is not member of the NATO. And uh, we are looking for defence on all the levels. So yesterday there was a meeting in Paris, 45 diplomats or diplomats from 45 countries gathering to try to work out what to do next. What was said? Uh, first of all, it was a really good si sign for Moldovan population, like, look, you are not alone. Look, it is first time in your history when a Moldovan leader managed to gather important international leaders specifically for a, for a conference or an event or a discussion about Moldova security. Uh, it is maybe more important than money, of course. Moldova needs money now to cover all this electricity gap because we have two problems. Uh, one of them that we do not have electricity, and the second, if we find it, and let's say we have already contacts and contracts with Romania, but it might be more expensive than Moldova may cover. 
and the Moldovan pensioners have a pension of 100 euro a month and if you have to pay only your energy bill like 200 euro a month uh, how do you survive and Moldova has a lot of poor um, let's say uh, pensioners because that was the system that worked badly for 30 years so first of all yesterday we got uh, a sign of that uh, Europe cares, that European leaders having their uh, problems everywhere uh, are willing to help uh, this poor country, but this country that makes a lot now to fight with corruption, to fight with the war, but also to help Ukraine in this way, because Moldova uh, stayed near Ukraine from the first day and helps with whatever uh, she can, not only accommodating refugees, but also offering, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever infrastructures they have, like roads or uh, trains to take goods, uh, through Moldovan territory um, to Europe or somewhere else. This meeting you, you described there, they showed willingness to help Moldova. When do you expect that willingness to transform into action and something that Moldova can genuinely benefit from? Uh, from what I had seen, uh, French president uh, already said that uh, they will offer um, 100 uh, million euro uh, for Moldova to solve a part of this energy crisis. And also from previous weeks, Moldova had signals that other European countries will help. For now, it is uh, clear like Moldova will have help to, to cover this energy crisis, let's say for two months, which is already brilliant. And then of course, I know that this government should never stop to look for uh, uh, new and uh, new opportunities, and that is good because the yesterday meeting um, set a lot of, let's say, new ideas, new friendships, new relations, new projects, and uh, uh, maybe new contracts. Because Moldova was uh, given EU candidacy status in, in June alongside Ukraine, and um, the president, Maya Sandu, has said that you're a dynamic democracy in what has become a dangerous neighbourhood. Moldova was working hard to improve, wasn't it, before this crisis landed on its doorstep? Yeah, it was first time ever when Moldova had a really pro-European and pro-democracy uh, government. And then it was not enough to fight with all the corruption Moldova had for 30 years. Then all this security crisis and price and the economical crisis and energy crisis came. So it would be really impossible to solve this problem alone, even for the best government in the world. But you know, you can't study how to manage this crisis in a school. You have to learn it uh, from doing step by step in the real life. That's why uh, Moldova being on the pro-European path, being a candidate, uh, of course needs help from the partners just to, to solve this most complicated problem in her life. And then, of course, Moldovan citizens will pay back and will show... Uh, uh, how they love democracy and how they uh, improve their country and, their, and being home. 
Alina Radu, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on today's programme, New Zealand Supreme Court rules that the country's voting age of 18 is discriminatory. I personally support a decrease in the voting age, but it is not a matter simply for me or even the government. Any change in electoral law of this nature requires 75% of parliamentarian support. We will look at whether this historic ruling will change anything. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Twenty-one here in London and we head to Qatar now where despite the World Cup being in full swing the trouble off the pitch is still taking precedence over the football matches. In one instance the Iranian players arguably made more of a success of protest than the English team. Well joining me now from Qatar is Daniel Reich who's the visiting associate professor at Georgetown University Qatar and author of Qatar and the 2022 FIFA World Cup Politics, Controversy and Change. A very good morning to you Daniel. Good morning. So just explain to us um, the, the latest controversy. What has made the headlines where you are? Or is this all being rather smoothed over? <laughs> I think um, it's the headline all over the world. Um, and uh, I, But I think it's a difficult situation for FIFA to allow uh, political uh, or in general messages uh, on the pitch because um, we have in, 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 in the UK or also my home country, Germany, we have the discussion about the one love armband. But for example, in the Arabic social media, there has been pressure on Arabic teams to show solidarity with Palestine, to show an armband in the colors of Palestine. So I think... FIFA just wanted to avoid a precedent and keep as much as possible political statements out of the pitch. But I think what the Iranian team has done was a very strong message of solidarity with the people at home who go on the street for freedom and also the oppression by the authorities against the protests. Because we had two sort of political arguments happening, two political problems being placed in the spotlight yesterday, as you've just mentioned. Um, in a moment, we'll talk about what the Iranians managed to achieve. But let's talk about this FIFA ban on England, and I think it was Wel Welsh players and other players indeed, for wearing the One Love armband. Um, the fact was is that FIFA threatened sporting sanctions against the players who decided to wear it. What, what's your reaction to that approach? Well, again, I think for FIFA it's a very difficult situation because if there's, uh, you know, you have in, in, in Western Europe completely different discussions than, for example, in Arabic countries where there's pressure on players to show solidarity with Palestine. So I think, I know everybody is now critical on FIFA, but... I think we also need a bit to understand that uh, they want to keep off, uh, keep off the pitch um, statements. Um, I mean, it's arguable whether that's a political statement, the one love 
Um, but um, I, I, I have a bit of understanding for this, and I hope the players find a different way to, to show uh, solidarity for an inclusive society. It's it's a different, difficult issue, though, isn't it? Because the only message that the general public got was the fact that FIFA was threatening sanctions against the likes of the England captain, Harry Kane. Um, there was criticism that FIFA failed to explain what arguably you have just done. And so by lacking clarity and explanation, they they get themselves into even more PR trouble in a in a story that has not been going well for them for some time, well, since they, they first decided that it was all going to happen in Qatar. Yes, but you know, uh, look, you we had, you are talking now with me from England. Uh, I'm German, but I also need to explain, as somebody who has like a more global view on developments, that some discussions um, we just have in a couple of uh, countries, and it reminds me of the boycott discussions that we had now over months. This is just happening in a couple of countries, and we look at the entire global south. I'm not aware of any. Asian or African country, South American country, where we had like this uh, boycott discourse. So overall, we are talking here about a small group of countries and um, who do not really express global concerns. So this is why President Infantino could also give such a speech, because he knows that he is backed by the entire global South. And we will see when he's running for re-election that he will get a very good result. Tell us about this, what the reaction to Infantino's speech was on Sunday. It was, it was frankly, for, for a lot of people watching, it was rather baffling. Yes, but I think the reactions were different, like in England, Germany, Scandinavia, and then in most other countries in the world. Because when I can just share that from discussions with my students, that many are bothered by the double standards uh, of the West. And um, so I think that um, <laughs> that why this speech might be seen quite critical in England or Germany, that there has been uh, much um, solidarity with it in, in, in most part of the global south, uh, which uh, think that um, the, 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 the West is not talking about its own responsibility for inequalities, uh, its own role in global capitalism, and um, also about, for example, in the case of England, it's a colonial past. And um, so I think that this speech is viewed um, quite differently uh, in, in Western Europe and in, in the global south. Nonetheless, it's a it's a global message that needs to be that needs to strike an, an emotion that needs to make an emotional connection with the rest of the world. So, can you understand why not just the global south but other parts of the world might find the whole FIFA narrative rather difficult? No, I think that uh, most of the world uh, concurs with Infantino about uh, double standards and uh, Western hypocrisy. I can just share that. Uh, when I talk with my students, they are quite upset about human rights violations uh, towards the Palestinian people uh, and that there are no sanctions for uh, Israeli football, for example. So we have completely different discourses in different um, uh, parts of the world. I think that's, um, that's important to understand what I personally see critical about the speech of Infantino, that he exaggerated what is the role of FIFA for the changes that have occurred in Qatar. 
uh, I think um, that when we see now the labor reforms in the last two years, the minimum wage, the dismantling of the kafala system, the extension of uh, hours in summer where outside work is not permitted, I think that uh, kudos should go to international human rights organizations, to international Amnesty International, to Human Rights Watch, uh, who um, uh, put a lot of pressure on Qatar, who engaged in a dialogue with the Qatari government, but also with the Qatari government itself, who engaged in a dialogue starting at a certain point and invited the International Labour Office in 2018 to set up an office in Doha and support the government and its labour reforms. So I think that uh, uh, Mr. Infantino should have mentioned also other actors who played an important part in the process of changes and not just uh, gives the impression that all the changes that have occurred were because of FIFA. So why do you think then that the, that the focus on Qatar is this time round is worse uh, than perhaps the focus that was on China during the Olympics in 2008, Russia in the World Cup in 2018, and even indeed Argentina when it held, held the, uh, the, the World Cup under a dictatorship? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, 1978 uh, was a different time and we had for a long time the approach of shut up and dribble, but but now we are living in an age of athlete activism. It has uh, become common that athletes express their views. It started with Colin Kaepernick in the U.S. who were kneeling in protest of police violence against African Americans. We had the U.S. soccer players um, uh, 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 requesting uh, equal pay. So now it has become more common that that athletes express their views, but certainly they are double standards when it comes to the Western reactions on, on China, a country that is committing, according to human rights organizations, a genocide uh, towards its Muslim minority population, and Russia that had already in 2018 when hosting the World Cup. It was four years after uh, it enacted the Crimea. It was after they bombed hospitals in Syria and so on. So there are certainly a, a double standards, and this is something that is really upsetting also many Qatari people. And they think that there is like also Islamophobia uh, that explains these different reactions. Nonetheless, the, the, the events on the pitch with uh, the Iranian team yesterday, you mentioned a little earlier, when they refused to sing their national anthem, arguably placing themselves in, in at quite significant risk for doing so, that allows sport to become uh, an incredibly important location for protest. Yes, and uh, Iran has, uh, you know, now the situation in Iran at the moment is really bad uh, with people going on the street and the response of the uh, uh, authorities causing a bloodbath uh, uh, at those uh, demonstrations. Uh, but it's not for the first time that Iran is in the focus. I mean, uh, last uh, World Cup in, in uh, Russia, uh, Iranian fans were protesting for... Um, open stadiums so that also women can uh, attend football matches in Iran. And uh, this is a serious violation um, of uh, the, the FIFA rules. So everybody should be able to attend a football match. And it's uh, hard to understand that there were not uh, actions uh, before by FIFA, but not only by FIFA, also by other sport federations um, that uh, uh, Iranian uh, sporting federations would not allow women to, to enter the stadiums because 
I mean, it's very difficult to expect from a sporting federation to react on domestic political developments. But this is something within sport, and that's not acceptable. Everybody should be able to go into a football stadium or volleyball stadium or whatever. And Iran is, according to my knowledge now, the last country that is not allowing its, its women to go to the stadium. What I found surprising yesterday is when I watch it on TV, I, uh, I've, I've not been in the stadium for that match. Uh, I, I, the camera was not much uh, uh, in the uh, showing on the spectators from, from my perception. Um, and, and that's something I didn't like because I know uh, there were many Iranian uh, people in the stadium and they are well known for, for their uh, great support and for their peaceful protest. And I had a bit the feeling that the camera was avoiding showing them on TV. So finally, and briefly, if you wouldn't mind, Daniel, when we talk about, you were saying about the difficulty of a sporting body to, to navigate the, 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 trick, the geopolitics and, and human rights, should or how do sporting bodies like FIFA, FIFA um, choose hosts after all this? Surely there must be a need to look more careful at, carefully at values before you start choosing yeah. locations. Look, the entire uh, FIFA governance system uh, that uh, selected the next World Cup host was uh, questionable. I mean, until the, including the World Cup 2022, the executive committee <laughs> have selected the next host. The select, uh, executive committee consisted of 24 people. Uh, when Russia, Qatar 2018-2022 were uh, selected, there were only 22 people in the executive committee because two were banned after a Sunday Times reporter tried to bribe them. And, uh, and um, the, the members were quite willing to accept the bribe. So there were 22 men making the decision. So as a political science professor, I would say very generally, the less people you have doing major decisions, the more tempting a system for corruption is. Now the entire FIFA governance system has changed since the 2026 World Cup, which goes to US, Canada, Mexico, the entire FIFA General Assembly, which consists of all the 211 member states, selects the next source. This is a far more democratic system, less tempting for corruption. So I think this is a, a very good step into to the direction of, of uh, avoiding uh, corruption. And of course, after all the discussions we had in the last years, and FIFA also included uh, uh, human rights criteria, uh, in its official selection criteria in 2016, I believe. Um, so in, 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 the, in, the, in the future, uh, we will have more um, uh, rational decisions, I believe, uh, than we had in the future. When one, one thing is important in the past. One thing is important to know. All the bits in the last 30 years, including the one 2006 for my, uh, the World Cup in my home country, Germany, for all the bits... Uh, there, there, there were reports about uh, a corruption around the bid. So it was the system and not the respective countries. And the system, fortunately, has changed. And in general, I think we will have uh, more debates about uh, human rights um, uh, criteria around mega sporting uh, events in the future uh, than we had in the past. And it's also very good that uh, athletes are more active to express their views, as we have seen with uh, English players such as Harry Kane and uh, Colin Kaepernick and many, many others. OK, Daniel Reicher, we'll have to leave you there. Thank you so much for joining us on the line from Qatar. The time is 7.35 here in London. A quick summary now of some of the day's headlines. 
Rescue workers in Indonesia are racing to reach people still trapped in rubble following yesterday's earthquake in West Java. More than 160 people have been killed and hundreds more injured by falling debris from collapsed buildings. District officials say evacuation efforts have been hampered by landslides in some areas. The EU and Serbia have warned that violence could erupt in Kosovo over a dispute over Serbian car number plates. The Kosovan authorities want the ethnic Serb minority to surrender their Serbian-issue plates. Serbia doesn't recognise Kosovan independence. EU-mediated talks have so far failed to resolve the issue. 38 people have died after a fire at a company dealing with chemicals and other industrial goods in central China. The fire broke out in Anyang City in the central Henan province on Monday. It took firefighters three and a half hours to bring the blaze under the control. No details have been given as to what caused it. And the Colombian government and rebel group ELN have begun fresh peace talks to try to end 60 years of war. President Gustavo Petro has promised to bring total peace to Colombia by negotiating with rebels and crime factions involved in drug trafficking and illegal mining. The talks will rotate among the guarantor countries of Venezuela, Cuba and Norway. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. here in London. Let's have a look at today's newspapers. I'm delighted to say Terry Stiasny, political journalist, author and regular Monocle 24 voice, is back in the studio. Very good morning to you, Terry. Right, how goes it with you and the papers? Uh, With the papers, it's it's interesting. Obviously, you know, mostly people are looking at the World Cup, so, and I know you've already been talking about the World Cup, and I don't know anything very much about it. Um, So let's try and find some other things that are going on in the world. Um, And this is quite interesting. So, um, obviously, here in the UK... We tend to hear an awful lot about migrants uh, in in the Channel, people coming to Britain. But in the rest of Europe, there has been an ongoing kind of row, uh, particularly between um, Italy and France in in the last few weeks about migrants arriving, uh, particularly in Italy and across the Mediterranean. And yesterday, the European Commission set out what it was going to try uh, to to do about it. Um, And in the Corriere della Sera in Italy, they have picked up on this, the EU's 20-point plan, they say, to try and deal with the migrant crisis. And there's some quite interesting uh, figures. So the European Commission's Internal Affairs Commissioner, Ulrich Johansson, presented this um, action plan uh, and, and it's going to be discussed on, on further on Friday. And she said there's more than uh, 90,000 people arriving in 2022 who had particularly come from Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, um, Bangladesh. And this has increased by 50% uh, compared to 2021. Um, and so obviously this has been a, a massive uh, political issue in Italy. Um, the Italian uh, inter- Internal Affairs Minister Matteo Piantedosi says he is satisfied by the contents of the plan, but they need to have um, kind of more discussions about what the rest of Europe is going to do about it. Um, And this story is also picked up in, in the Times here in in the UK, uh, where they are talking a bit more about some of the causes of this. So it's quite interesting as to why uh, why this number has risen so fast in the past year. And they put that down to quite a few different things. So uh, interestingly, fishing limits in in Libya, uh, the in fishing limits, according to the Times here, imposed by the authorities around Tobruk, may have persuaded fishermen to sell their boats to people traffickers. And also saying problems in Egypt in the economy, people are getting on the, these small boats, and also in in eastern Libya, the conflict has kind of increased in eastern Libya, and so people are, you know, worried about the situation in Libya and, and therefore trying to.
to get through and coming through Libya from other countries. This is an astonishing um, moment in, in, in sort of journalism because I suspect that had we been transported back to 2015, we would be reading identical articles about the European Union struggling to work out what to do with migrant boats what to do with the, the, the flow of migration over from, from the likes of Egypt and Libya and from places you know, all, all over that part of the world where human rights abuses are, are, are driving people away. Um, it, there is this perpetual thing, isn't there, that forever and forever people will try to get across the Mediterranean because it is a comparatively short distance. It's not a short distance, it's a hor- horrific one. But it's also, you know, it is, it is the one way out. Well, yes, and it's, you know, I've... In Politico, the website has has a bit more of a discussion of what's actually in this plan, but there's still uh, these issues that they can't really agree on. For instance, like what to do with uh, the charity boats that are picking up people and rescuing them. Um, what to to do about NGOs? You know, is is that right? Is that the right thing to do? Obviously, a lot of people would say yes. Of course, it's right to rescue people. You know, when they're at sea. Um, but they're also saying the EU members need to have. I mean, this is quite amazing. A voluntary relocation pact that several countries agreed to last June and the European Commissioner said only so far only about 100 migrants have actually been relocated despite the fact that various countries had pledged to take in 8,000 of them so you know the numbers of people actually uh, being moved from one country to another is is, is absolutely minimal despite people saying that, that they would do this. Uh, let's look at the Financial Times and the way that the uh, immigration issue which is so politically unpleasant um, dominates the well. People look to, to to parties to see which way they are going to go on immigration. Obviously, post Brexit, um, a huge number of um, jobs have remained unfilled here in the United Kingdom because of that absence of, of EU workers. The immigration minister Robert Jenrick has said we still want to reduce net mi- migration. We think that that's what the British public wants. Um, we also have now the Labour leader Sakir Starmer who arguably is slightly more relaxed when it comes to migration and immigration, but knows that this is a sort of dog whistle politics issue that that he needs to satisfy his voters about. Yes, that's right. So um, this week this has come up because it is the the annual meeting of the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, which which represents uh, businesses. And we had the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak speaking there yesterday. Keir Starmer, Labour leader, is going to be speaking there today. And uh, the CBI, they're basically saying, look, we need a looser immigration regime. We need more people to be able to, to come and work in the UK. And so Keir Starmer is trying to balance that, saying, well, yes, on the one hand, maybe you need some more immigration, but actually you need to not have days of low pay and cheap labour from overseas. And he's also suggesting that uh, you need to have more training, higher skills uh, within the UK. So at the same time as having migrants, you need to be training British people better for better jobs and for for new technology. But they wanted to pick up here on the the feature that the Financial Times has done, which um, looks at what this means in practice. And in one particular part, of the UK in Scotland, um, they have been to uh, Rory Christie's Pig and Dairy Farm, which sits in a picturesque corner of the windswept coast of Dumfries and Galloway. Um, and they're saying, despite this being such a beautiful place to work, they can't get anybody to come and work there. So uh, the farmer is, is in a remote part of Scotland 
He has failed to attract any local applicants for his job and he is trying to sponsor workers from as far away as the Philippines, which he says is a time-consuming and expensive uh, process. And, of course, there's an extra layer of complication added into this because, you know, within Scotland, obviously, there's an argument for people uh, wanting independence and then they are saying, well, you know, <laughs> would, would, we ha- would a Scot- an independent Scotland have a different kind of um, immigration policy? And so you're saying, you know, th- this is a problem not only in rural areas of Scotland, um, but also even in, you know, St Andrews in Fife, you know, which is relatively near to Edinburgh, uh, they're just not able to get people with the skills. So they talked to a a butcher here in the butcher shop saying the average age of butchers in the area uh, was above 60, but because there's no uh, affordable housing, they can't get apprentices and they can't retrain people to to fill those jobs. Finally, uh, let's move on to um, a problem in Antwerp um, that they've seized. Well, the police have seized so much cocaine. They need to. They need a proper incinerator to get rid of it all, and they can't do it fast enough. This this is an amazing story. Um, it's picked up in in a lot of the of the, the UK press, um, and saying yeah, they they've got so much. They have seized. Obviously, the police have had a, a great success here, I guess, in in Antwerp in one way. Um, but they've got so much cocaine that they can't fit it all into their incinerator, and that is causing a knock on problem. So apparently, ni- a record year for cocaine seizures. 90 tonnes of cocaine seized at the port of Antwerp last year. Uh, cocaine trade worth up to £130 billion a year. I assume that's you know across either Europe or the worldwide on, based on UN figures. But the problem is that because they've got this sort of backlog of cocaine that can't be burned, um, they picked up eight tonnes of it uh, just 10 days ago, they have to keep it in a warehouse. So then they have to have extra security around the warehouse because the gangs want to come and get this back, not surprisingly. So, they, um, you know, so it sounds... I mean, it does sound like a sort of, you know, a heist movie or some kind of thing, but it's it's danger. The, the crime gangs have an incentive to attack and loot the warehouses. Uh, and the Justice Minister, the Interior Minister... I think it's the, no, the Justice Minister um, has even been threatened... He's had a kidnap plot against him by the drug crime gang. So uh, the fact that they can't get rid of this cocaine they're seizing it can't get rid of it quickly enough um, but then it's causing kind of knock-on dangers of crime sort of f- further down the line because because they can't get rid of it terry stiasny thank you so much you're listening to the globalist ubs has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today to find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com. Now, could the voting age in New Zealand be lowered to 16? The country's Supreme Court has ruled that not allowing 16 and 17-year-olds to vote amounts to age discrimination. And to tell us more, I'm joined now by Dr Andrew Mycock, a political scientist from the University of Huddersfield and president of the Children's Identities and Citizenship in Europe Association. He's based in Manchester, which is uh, where he joins me now from. Uh, Very good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. So the voting age in... um, New Zealand is currently 18. So how has this challenge come about? Well, it's largely come about by a group of uh, young campaigners called Make It 16, and they have been advocating for lowering the voting age to 16 for about five years. Uh, That hasn't picked up a significant amount of political or public support, and so in the end they chose an option of going to the Supreme Court and making a legal challenge that on the basis of human rights... It was denying 16 and 17 year olds their right to vote. So 
It is a historic decision. And as much as this is the first time that we've seen young campaigners across the world take a legal route rather than a constitutional route for a parliament. Because it's no, it's, it's, this is normally a protest which then demands a change in the law. So tell us how different this legal approach is. Well, they've had to be tenacious and they've had to really think of, you know, hard about how they campaign because it's been a very technical campaign and as much as they've had to learn the law and they've had to basically work out, you know, the, the fact that they have a human right legislation, which is universal across the world, but also in New Zealand. And uh, the fact that they've actually won this victory has made, you know, in many ways, the political, you know, elites in, in in New Zealand look a little bit archaic and outdated. They've been rather sort of uh, outflanked by these young campaigners. And yet at the same point, they find themselves probably in the same position they did before the court case, which is that they need the support of Parliament, the New Zealand Parliament, to get this legislation through. Now, Jacinda Ardern, the country's Prime Minister, has said that any change to an electoral law of this nature requires three quarters of parliamentarian support. What's the likelihood of that happening? In the current climate, um, quite limited. Um, the Labour Party's support for votes at 16 has been rather tepid at best. You know, they, they have signed up to it, but they've never really pushed it as a policy. And the National Party and ACT New Zealand, which are the two parties on the right of uh, the political spectrum in New Zealand, are both opposed to this. And they're opposed to it on rather logical reasons, which is that it's highly likely that if 16 and 17-year-olds are enfranchised, they're more likely to vote for what so-called progressive parties, i.e. the Greens or, or Labour. So in some ways, I think that the interesting point about this court case is that it's likely to harden political opinion in New Zealand and make it possibly even more difficult to bring votes at 16 in. Are you surprised by that? Well, I am in some senses. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I've been doing in my research over the last decade or so is looking at the process of how the vote voting age is lowered. And typically it's lowered either through an act of parliament by a government in, in power. We looked at, um, you know, particularly in Austria, that's the case, or that there's some kind of accord that's signed between different political parties. And, you know, in Scotland, the voting age was lowered to 16 for the 2014 independence referendum. And that was an accord between the Conservatives in Westminster and the Scottish National Party in Holyrood. Here, I think the challenge is, is that in many ways, you know, going through the legal um, route does provide, you know, a, certainly a greater profile for the issue. And I think that one of the things that the Make It 16 campaign have been successful is raising the issue in New Zealand politics. And yet the problem is, is that this falls into a much broader debate, a sort of culture war debate in some ways about the age of politics, you know, politics of age. And there is this tension between those parties that are on the right that seem to sort of feel that younger people are maybe more woke or more sort of, you know, liberal in their attitudes. And they're worried that if you lower the voting age, then that dilutes their own influence in politics. So I suspect that although this is a significant victory, that in the longer course of the idea of bringing votes at 16 in New Zealand, it might actually make it a longer-term project. The fact remains is that New Zealand is, I'm not quite sure how to describe this, a country which is usually quite happy to explore ideas like this. If we see no change in the, in the lowering of votes, in the voting age in New Zealand, what does that mean for other young people's movements across the world who want to change the vote? 
It's a really good question. I, I think in some senses, it, you know, there is a momentum building across the globe in terms of votes at 16. This is not the same as when the voting age was low to 18. We've done some research looking at, you know, how the voting age was low to 18 in the United Kingdom and then its effect internationally. It was like a domino effect. We've not seen this. Austria first lowered the voting age to 16 in 20, 2008, and yet we haven't seen a successive following of uh, that same domino effect. And I think that that highlights that these debates are very much about different national circumstances. Um, for example, you know, the Republic of Ireland had a constitutional convention in 2013, which they agreed to lower the voting age to 16. Still, nearly a decade later, that hasn't happened. And, uh, you know, we've seen it in the United Kingdom, although the voting age has been lowered in Scotland and now in Wales to 16 for national and local elections. That doesn't yet seem to have had an effect on the way Westminster thinks about this question. And so in England and Northern Ireland, young people who are 16 and 17 don't get the vote. So I'm not quite sure that the New Zealand case will, you know, will, 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 will stymie or in some ways stunt the uh, the move towards votes at 16. We're starting to see momentum in the United States and in Canada and in Spain. So there are other countries where this is a live issue. But I think it will raise questions about the actual process of how you lower the voting age and to what extent you need to bring together political opinion and public opinion on this issue to make sure that there's an acceptance that 16 and 17 year olds are part of the electorate. Dr. Andrew Mycock, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Let's get a roundup of the latest tech news. I'm delighted to say Josh Coles is uh, joining us on the line, researcher at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute. Hello, Josh. Hi, Emma. Good to be back. Good to have you. Right. We have to look at Twitter and Elon Musk. What is happening at the moment? Because not no one's entirely sure, A, what the narrative is publicly, but B, what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah, in short, a lot is happening. And uh, I think we're just waiting to see how the best laid plans of Elon Musk actually transform into reality over the, the coming days. So to give you a, a short overview, as you all know now, Musk took over Twitter after a long running saga this year uh, and promptly fired uh, a large number of the uh, workforce at Twitter responsible for both keeping the site online and keeping it safe for people to use. On those metrics, uh, it doesn't seem to be going terribly well. Uh, the site seems to have been mostly up. People thought it would crash entirely, uh, particularly during the World Cup, but it seems to be mostly functional, at least for me at the moment. Um, but on the content moderation side, this is where questions have really been asked, because if you sack your entire or large parts of your content moderation team, you might expect the negative content on the site and the toxic content to build up. And by some estimates, that does seem to be what's happening right now. Add on to that issues that Twitter is having with verification, and it is a bit of a fruit salad of problems at the moment. Is there a sense that there's a strategy behind this, or is this Elon Musk making decisions on the turn of a, a turn of a coin? Well, certainly on the uh, business side, Musk needs to make money pretty quickly to repay the debtors who who uh, who lent him some money to actually buy the social network. So I think that was behind the initial uh, plans to relaunch Twitter's uh, verified blue service, which let anyone pay. $8 uh, to get verified on the site. As we saw in the last couple of weeks, that caused a bit of disaster because you had both reputable news organizations and fake impersonators and also, in some cases, organizations spreading COVID misinformation all verified under the same system, which really led people to question uh, what information was, was true and not on the site. That um, and some worries over how many advertising partners are going to stick with Twitter 
uh, because of all this stuff uh, is really raising questions about the bottom line. But I think there's a deeper question uh, as well about uh, the decision-making processes that Musk has in place. And certainly his uh, recent decisions on uh, reinstating Donald Trump because of a poll on the site, not very scientific poll of uh, Twitter users. Then on the other hand, keeping off Alex Jones, who's a conspiracy theorist, um, because of some personal experiences Musk has had with the sort of stuff that Jones has trafficked in, really shows that this is now one man's decision-making apparatus, which I think is going to have big uh, consequences down the line. What happens to those Twitter followers who, uh, I think I read somewhere, one person said, I'm too old for Instagram, too young for Facebook, what do I do now? Yeah, well, a lot of people are turning to a uh, open source social network called Mastodon, which I've described as being a bit of a combination of email uh, and Reddit and Twitter. Um, this is a site where you can, uh, it looks and feels quite a bit like Twitter, um, but you are able to join your sort of moderation system of choice, which gives you a bit more control over how, what content you see and, and who you interact with. Of course, that is small and networks like Twitter and Instagram rely on the huge numbers of people who are on those sites. So in the immediate term, it's not quite clear where those people should necessarily go. But I think if we continue to see uh, the, the tone of Twitter going downhill, people will be forced into other alternatives. Uh, talk to me about flying taxis, Josh. Yeah, so this is the news that um, US regulators uh, have given ta uh, flying taxis uh, one step closer to lifting off the ground after they published rules to uh, explain the, uh, how, how these uh, machines should be regulated. I think we've all pictured the, uh, the sci-fi vision of taxis flying through the air uh, as what we might hope to see in the year 2000, or if not that year 2020, if not that the year 2050. But it might be that in our lifetimes, and even in time for the 2024 Olympics in Paris, we will get these commercial uh, flying vehicles literally off the ground uh, and and serving people. It still feels, of course, like, the, like science fiction. But given that US agencies like the Federal Aviation Administration are weighing in to clarify the rules for how they should work, that is normally the sign that things are getting ready for takeoff. Well, I mean, just reasonably briefly, if you wouldn't mind, the, the fact is, is that the technology is on its way, but has anybody worked out where these things are going to land? I think that's one of the one of the big questions which they might want to sort out before they take off. Yeah. Uh, in addition, I think um, in working out how these interrelate inter, uh, to um, congested cities, obviously uh, conventional air traffic and things like that are really important. But potentially for things like transporting cargo, this, this could be really vital. Of course, the other thing they're going to have to think about is ensuring that these are uh, carbon friendly enough to get uh, to, to get on board uh, with the rules that the US and others have adopted uh, through the COP process. Josh Coles, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. And that's all to the time we have for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to our producers, Laura Kramer, Emma Sell and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers were Lillian Forces and Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Hall. After the headlines, more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.